Thank you, Mark. Thank you, choir, orchestra. You got your Bibles turned to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. I know the Bible talks about betting and the dangers of it and gambling. That's not what we're going to talk about this morning. But I would bet you all the cranberry sauce at Publix that Sherwood's the only place that mentioned the word chitlins in the offering. I don't think we have to send out a Facebook poll. <laughs> the results are in, and we have won. <laughs> oh, man, oh, man. <laughs> if you're having a difficult time finding 1 Peter, Hebrews, James, 1 Peter. Um, we're wrapping up this series this morning on Hope is Rising. And, you know, I look around and we're singing this song, Thou, O Lord, is a shield for me. The lifter of my head. And then you see some people are seated and some people are standing. And you may be new and you may wonder, like, why are some of these people standing? I'm with the choir standing. Not, should I stand? Why is not everybody standing? Do they know something I don't know? You know, at the end of the day, we never know what someone's being delivered from. You, you never know what somebody's walking through and the path they're on and the struggles that they have. And so there are just certain songs and there are certain scriptures that just resonate with the heart of men and women that are walking with Jesus that you just say, hey, listen, that's me, that, that you are the lifter of my head. That The Bible says, why so downcast, O oh, my soul? Put your hope in God. And it's, it's tough to do that when our eyes are on our circumstances and the issues that we're walking in and facing and, and dealing with, whether it's at home or in your marriage or at the job or in your neighborhood or in your own family, or all of those things combined, we know that he is the lifter of our head. And when our eyes are on him, we can walk in a hope that transcends space and time. We can walk in a hope and live in a hope and cling to a hope that Jesus is greater and has defeated death, hell, and a grave in the whole world and that we will one day be reunited with him. It's that time of year. So you guys are thinking about Thanksgiving. I'm already thinking about Christmas. <laughs> there are two types of people when it comes to Christmas. There's Buddy the Elf and there's Ebenezer Scrooge. And I see people complaining, hey, listen, don't come to my office starting in September because I'm rocking Christmas music early. Or third quarter, I'm listening to Christmas music. I love Christmas. I, I'm in a better mood. I just, I enjoy it. I love everything about it. Um, it's just so much fun to me. Um, just, I just love it. And I love Christmas music. And if you need me to share my playlist with you, it's expansive. And, and I love it. I know all the words, old, new, in between. It's just very, very great. And I don't know what the traditions are at your home, but we're a family, much like maybe many of you, where we exchange gifts and try to teach our kids that we exchange gifts uh, and gifts are given because ultimately God the Father gave us the greatest gift of all in the person of Jesus Christ. Well, when we're at my house and when we're at my in-laws' home, we do it and everybody just kind of goes around and like, oh, look what I get. And nobody really waits for each other. But when we go to my wife's grandmother's house, 
we do it much differently. And I'm not going to say that the way we do it was Satan's idea. (laughs) But I think he was on the committee. (laughs) What we do is we sit around in this giant circle and everybody opens one gift at a time. And then it goes to the next person. And then it goes to the next person. How many people you guys do that? Oh, cool. Well, the congregation will be a lot lower next week. And so, (laughs) yeah. Um, I, I, I just didn't grow up with that. And it is the most long, arduous, and you guys are like, it's so much fun. No, it's not. It's not fun. <laughs> it, it's tough. And here's why it's tough. Because you're sitting there, and you've already kind of looked at your boxes, and you're thinking, hmm, I think I know what that might be. I'm going to save that for last. Or I'm going to open it now so I can start enjoying it. Or I know what that is. There's no idea what this is. And he finally gets to you, and you open it up, and it's from your Meemaw. And you say, oh, thanks, Meemaw. And you open it up, and it's an oatmeal cream pie. (laughs) And so you have to wait six hours for the circle to get back to you. And then you open it again, and oh, cool, it's a tangerine. That's what I've been wanting. I know that makes me selfish, but at least I'm honest about it. There's something about having to wait for what we think we really, really want that's so difficult, but then when we finally get it, it makes it all worth it. Well, Peter is writing to Christians in this book where he's saying, listen, you don't have to just think about the hope that you will have in Christ. You don't have to think about the glory that you'll experience in the expanse of heaven one day, that you were saved to a living hope right here and right now. And the beauty of that is that we don't have to just think, well, this is, this is just life. This is just the way it is. That we can choose to walk in the victory and the fullness and the hope of Jesus Christ as we embrace his word and, and, and his spirit calls us to obedience that we are not shackled down to just enduring life, but that we can celebrate with joy that he is risen from the grave and that we are one with him. Join me in 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just real quick, that word blessed there, uh, the English language is really, really limited because blessed for us means that, that it just means blessed. But the actual Greek word there, I don't know how to pronounce it, but I'll tell you that it's only used when it's talking about the Father in the New Testament. That this type of blessed, it, it literally, it doesn't deal with someone uh, being given a child or, or, or being financially prosperous. It literally means that he is blessed. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power and being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible 
and filled with the glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Father, I pray as we open your word, as we read your word, as we study your word, that you would quicken our hearts to your spirit. God, your word tells us that you enlighten your word to your people. And so, Father, I pray that you would do that to me this morning. I pray that you would do that to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The church was being dispersed. The church is being scattered. They were being judged. They were facing harsh criticism. And not just verbal criticism, but they were facing persecution beyond anything that you and I have probably, growing up in in the U.S., have seen up until this point. And he's writing them a letter to encourage them, to exhort them, to, to cause them to stick with the stuff, to continue to walk in the faith to keep their eyes on the person of Christ and to help them remember not just what they have been saved from, but whom they have been saved to. The first thing we see in this passage is that we have hope because he lives. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God our Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have hope because he lives. Should we sing it? Because he lives. beautiful is that truth? How beautiful is that truth that we can face anything that life throws at us. We have hope in him because he lives. And because he lives, we've been made co-heirs with Christ, one with him, adopted as sons and daughters, princes and princesses of the king, that we belong to an eternal kingdom and we can walk in the fullness of who he is and everything that God's word tells us that we can embrace. And whatever God's word says is ours in him is ours in him. It's not subject to uh, authorities. It's not subject to opinion. It's not subject to polls. But that God's word says that we have hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so there are times that you don't feel like living. There are times that you don't feel like going further. There are times you don't, you feel marginalized by society, by family, by your coworkers, by your boss, by, by everybody in this world. But the Bible tells us that we have great value because of who he is and what he's done. And that's one of the reasons that we have hope. You see in this passage, it says he has caused us to be born again, to a living hope. He has caused us. It's nothing that you have done. It's nothing that I have done. You see, I didn't decide one day to give my life to Jesus. I was sitting in a room in Panama City Beach, Florida as a middle school student, and all of a sudden, uh, listening to the gospel, I became increasingly and painfully aware that I was broken and that I was a sinner and that I could not fix myself. I, I didn't think, 
let me see what I can do for the kingdom. I'm going to give my life to Jesus and really spruce things up around here. I didn't come to Jesus because of what I could do for him. I came to Jesus because of what he can do for us. You understand that when we come to Jesus, ultimately it's a selfish decision because it's not about what we can do for him. It's because we know and we realize that we need him desperately. And we come to him broken and empty and poor and shackled by sin and we leave as sons and daughters belonging to a kingdom that there is no end to, that there never will be an end to and a familial bond that cannot be revoked. He's caused us. It's according to his great mercy. One of the most difficult things about moving back to the South is that everybody's convinced that they're Christians. Everybody thinks that, that they have a walk with Jesus and that they know Christ. And having gospel conversations with the context of our culture that we live in, you almost have to deprogram someone from their good works mentality to tell them that it's not of works. It's by grace through faith lest any man should boast. When you're in a culture that is largely unchurched and largely unchristian, which we are, but the, the religion of where we live is moralism. It's about what they do, and it's about what they haven't done. And we equate that if we're good, then we're godly. But you see, good isn't good enough. And good doesn't equate godliness. Godliness equates godliness. And there's nothing that I can do to win or earn the unmerited favor of Jesus that he has caused us and brought us to salvation. You see the word inheritance in verse 4. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's an inheritance that is for the both here and now. That it literally is much better than the jelly of the month club, but it is the gift that keeps on giving. It's an inheritance that, that he gives us for the future. That's limitless. No one's sitting around the table as a lawyer sits around and talks about what someone's going to get and they're part of the estate. If you belong to Jesus, it's all yours. You have access to the kingdom. You have access to everything in Christ Jesus. That you are not spiritually poor. You're not spiritually bankrupt. That you can walk in the fullness as an heir of the throne of God. That we have an inheritance in Christ that surpasses anything that this world and its riches has to offer us. Next, we have hope because he gives. He gives us an inheritance. And it says that it's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. I've put in your notes some of the, the mentionings of inheritance that you can read both in the Old and the New Testament. And I would encourage you guys to maybe go home with your families or yourself and read through those passages and see how God has woven those things together. The first word that he mentions is imperishable. It's a sense of permanence that will stand the test of time. The inheritance that we have is, is, is imperishable. It literally will never go away. It will never fade. If you have the misfortune of being in the hospital um, on Wednesdays, I'm more than likely coming to see you. Wednesdays are my hospital days, and, and um, I, I love coming to the hospitals to visit people. I don't want to go as a patient, but uh, I, I enjoy coming and, and seeing our people. And, and praying with our people. And many times, uh, as I told 
our pastor's prayer partners this morning, many times I, I leave blessed and encouraged by the people that I'm with. But every Wednesday I'm reminded that our bodies are failing. That they're going away. I had a birthday on Friday, and, and I do this every, every year, and I know it's strange, and I'm strange, and that's okay. But, but you know what the old, um, the old philosopher said? People are strange when you're a stranger. That's actually not a philosopher. It was a, it was a song from the 60s, I think. But at any rate, <laughs> slow crowd today, Pastor Ken. Everybody hold up your left thumb. Just look at it. However old you are, like I turned 39, this thumb's 39 years old. And I know that's, I know people, normal people don't think about stuff like that. But here's why I think about stuff like that. Because we'll be 39 or 49 or 59 or 79 or whatever. And when something starts aching us, what do we do? We complain about it. I can't believe my back's hurt. You're 106. (laughs) Your back's going to give out. You know, like. We were not meant, we actually were. We were created to stand the test of time, but because of sin and the effects of sin, it has completely devastated humanity and nature. We had a, we had a pipe go out in our house this week, uh, and, and our house was built in 1962. And I thought for a second, like, of all times for this to go out, I mean, come on. And I could just hear the pipe going, hey, man, I'm 54 years old. I've done my best. It's time for a new pipe. I'm retiring. We tend to do that, though. Listen, the inheritance of Jesus and the hope is imperishable. It will never fade. It will never go away. It's just a beautiful sense that we see that it continues to renew itself. Not only is it imperishable, but it's undefiled, pure, untouched by the world. You and I, outside of our encounter with the person of Christ, by the wooing of the Holy Spirit, have never been in contact with anything that is undefiled, untouched by the world, in meant condition. That what Jesus gives us and what the Father offers us is perfect. It has always been perfect. It is perfect now, and it forever will be perfect. And it's beyond our comprehension because everything we see around us, our bodies, our homes, everything is is diminishing in value and, and losing its credibility and its structure and its foundation, but not our inheritance in Jesus and not our hope in the cross. It is imperishable, it is undefiled, and it is unfading. Once and for all, new. Lamentations 3, 22 through 23 says, the steadfast love of the Lord, listen to this, never, never, never ceases. His mercies never come to an end, and they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. They never cease. They never come to an end, and they're new every morning. And it's unfading. I... um. My family and I really enjoy going to Disney. We haven't been in a little over a year, and, uh, but, and we miss it, but we really, really enjoyed it. There's, there's some people don't know this, but um, 
Disney, if you go, there's 27 hitching posts throughout Magic Kingdom. There's, it's like a horse head, and it's, it's kind of the idea of when someone would have drawn, uh, ridden a horse up to something, got off, and, and wrapped the, the straps. I don't know, equestrian people, what this is called, but like the straps around, and the horse would have stayed there. It's called a hitching post. Um, I was told they paint those every night. Every night. And the reason why is because they pay such great attention to detail that they want it to be just so. And they want it to be perfect every day for guests that are going to be there and take pictures and touch them and handle them and all these different things. They want it to be new every day. Hey, can I tell you something? That Jesus doesn't have to redo anything. It has always been perfect and it will always be perfect. It never ceases. And it's always new. Every morning we see that it is unfading There's a um, quote in your notes from R.C. Sproul. It says, hope is called the anchor of the soul. You can read that in Hebrews 6.19. Because it gives stability to the Christian life. But hope is simply not a wish, like I wish that such and such would take place. Rather, it is that which latches on to the certainty of promises of the future that God has made. You see, when we hope, we're not hoping like we wish something would happen, like we're going to hit the lottery and play the numbers right, just right, or if the stars align and we're going to escape some type of trouble or, 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 or uh, acquire some type of goods. We don't hope like that. We hope in something that is secure. We hope in something that is eternal. We hope in something that is foundational and, and structurally sound, and it's the person of Jesus Christ. Faith is best seen in the context of testing. We don't like to think about like that, but faith, our faith, my faith, your faith is best seen in the context of testing. You see, all of us can be on our best behavior and worship God when we are walking by streams and lying in green pastures, looking at the flowers and everybody's healthy. But it's hard to walk with Jesus when you've lost your job and you're one paycheck away from being in bankruptcy. It's hard to walk with Jesus when your marriage is in trouble and you have a wayward child. It's hard to walk with Jesus when there's been a cancer diagnosis and not much hope has given. You see, our faith is best seen in the context of testing and the reason why is because the word of God says that in my weakness you are made strong, that your strength is made perfect in me. Look at verses six and seven. In this you rejoice through now for a little while, if necessary, and Peter actually meant probable, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes through it is tested by the fire. I may have shared this uh, uh, last year sometime, but I had an opportunity to go to uh, Colorado uh, back in 2008 and do some things for North American Mission Board, and I had a free day. And so I got a chance to drive over to Estes Park in the Rockies. And if you've never had opportunities to see the Rocky Mountains, they're absolutely just astounding. They're absolutely beautiful. And, And the closer I got to them, the smaller I felt in the scheme of eternity. Just thinking about how grand and how great and powerful our great God is. You drive up Estes Park and it's long and the mountain's getting bigger because you're getting closer. And you get up to the top and you start to see trees that are bent and they're actually starting to bend down. They're curving down. 
And I asked the guy with us, I said, what's going on with these trees? Are they diseased? He said, no. He said, we're getting up above what's called the tree line where the oxygen level changes. And then trees, instead of growing up, start growing down because the oxygen is richer at the bottom than at the top. And you get to the top, and there's, there's some strange-looking animals, and, but there's no trees, and there's, there's um, minimal brush, and it's just kind of barren, and you're looking, and you see down into the valley, and it's lush and green, and there's water, and there's trees, and there's life, and everything like happens. You see, everybody wants to be on the mountain, but growth happens in the valley. When we're going through trials... That's where growth happens. And I'm so quick to want to get out of the trials of my life. I want to do everything I can to try to break away from the issues that are plaguing me in the moment, so much so that times, often, oftentimes, I miss what the Lord is trying to teach me in the valley. Peter's saying, hey, there's, there's a genuineness that's being tested in your faith, that when you are in the valley... Don't miss what God wants to teach you. Don't miss how he wants you to grow. That yes, the view is beautiful from the top and everybody wants to be in the top, but magic happens in the valley. Growth happens in the valley. There's a deepening of your faith and a restructurization of your understanding and your journey with Christ that happens in the valley that can't take place on the mountain. Faith is best seen in the context of our testing. You see, these believers that he's writing to, in their context, refused to worship an emperor as a little g-god, and they were viewed as traitors. As the hostility in our world and our country begins to, uh, and the scrutiny begins to tighten around Christianity and, and people of faith, we have to understand that, that we have to stiffen our spines on the word of God, not on the pride of life, and say we will not bow to any other other than the person of Christ. And we have to be unrelenting about that. We, we have to be willing to die for that. And the reason why is because we've got thousands of years of men and women that have done the exact same thing. They refuse to worship at pagan temples we can't sell the truth of the gospel for imitation, religion. They didn't support the ideals of self that the Roman government tried to bestow on them, the power. And they lived a life that was of self-sacrifice. You see, trials teach us not to be comfortable with this world or dependent on this life. It helps us. It's a reminder for all of us that there is something greater When we face trouble, the best thing we can say is that, Lord, you have said in your word. Amen. When we pray scripture and when we remind ourselves, you see, it's not just for us. It's also for the people around us. People that watch people walk through trials, they learn a lot about that person's faith. And like you, there are times I've done that well and there are times that I've done that poorly. Trials also help us deliver, develop patience. Sometimes I just want to say, hey, Lord, I'm good on the patience department. If you could just teach someone else a little patience, I sure would appreciate it. I know that person needs some patience. And trials are nothing, nothing compared to the eternity of joy that we have been promised. Faith also loves, faith believes, and faith rejoices 
Verse 8 says, though you have not seen him, speaking of Jesus, you love Jesus. Though you do not now see Jesus, you believe in Jesus and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. This is the same idea that Jesus was, was saying in John 20, 29 when he appeared to Thomas in the upper room. And he said, Thomas, you believe because you've seen me, but blessed are those, blessed are us that have believed and have yet not seen He's talking about us, people that preceded us, people that will come after us, people that are people of the faith without having encountered visually the person of Christ. You see, Christian faith does not focus on some abstract idea or some fallible person. It focuses on one person, and his name is Jesus. We don't wish someone's going to come through for us and save us by hitting a last-second shot at the buzzer or to throw a Hail Mary to send the game into overtime and us win by a PAT. That Jesus has already won. He is the victor. We're just waiting on time to run out the clock. We share in the victory because he is victorious. Um, in, in your word there, it might say inexpressible or indescribable. It literally means unutterable. Isn't that beautiful? That it's a joy that's unutterable. It's a joy that, that this, word is on, this, 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 this word is only found here in the New Testament one time. It's, it's so deep that words can't even express. You, ever, you just, do you ever you love something so much that you just, you don't even say anything, you just kind of grunt? Like some of you guys will do it Thursday, right? You get a hold of somebody's like Nana's pudding or, or green bean casserole, Right? Or uh, what is um, sweet potato casserole where it's cooked a little, little much and it's got a crunch and a crisp. And what do you say? You just go, mmm. And that's a good thing. Much more so than our taste buds and much more so than something that we, that we consume. It says that the, the, his joy is, we, the words, the, our lexicon falls short. We can't even express how good and wonderful and pleasant it is. The last thing we see in verse 9 is that faith saves. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Remember I said earlier, it says, by grace you've been saved through faith. Not of yourself, not of works, lest any man should boast. It says, the outcome of your faith. The outcome of faith is salvation. Some of you are in here, probably a, a great majority of you, like me, have made a decision to follow Christ at some point in your life where you recognized, as I did, that you were a sinner and that you couldn't fix the mess you were in and that you were broken. And some of you in here may have thought that you made that decision or you may have never made that decision, but you've been curious about who Jesus is and what he offers, and you really like what Jesus says and what Jesus has done, but you don't know Jesus. You see, it's not enough to know about Jesus. You have to know Jesus. Amen. Leonard Ravenhill says that religion hangs around the cross, but Christianity gets on it. So it's not enough for me just to be close to Jesus in proximity because I can be close to Jesus in proximity and still not have a relationship with him. Just like you're close to people in this room, proximity, but you don't have a relationship with them. That's not salvation. 
Salvation's coming to a point where you realize that you have sin in your life, that you're far from God. But God's not in heaven throwing rocks at you trying to make your life difficult. That God is doing everything he can to pursue you so that you will know him. The very fact that you're here this morning is evidence of that. Anything could have happened that would have kept you from coming this morning, but you're here. And it's not an accident. And if God wanted to judge you, he could have and would have by now. The reason that we have breath is to know God and to make him known. And if you don't know God, he wants to know you today, today, today. Our sin separates us from a holy God. And we realize that we realize that we're in brokenness. And we try to fix our own brokenness. If we just maybe get another wife or another husband or another house or another boat or another job, or maybe drugs and alcohol, maybe pornography, maybe something in my life, there's a hole that's missing and that hole gets wider and wider and deeper and deeper the further we get away from God's design for our life. Because the only person that fits that place in our life is the person of Christ. God's not mad at you. God's not out to get you. God's pursuing you because he loves you and he wants you to know him. God's plan for you is so far beyond anything you could imagine. And it's so much greater than anything that you and I could dream up. If you're in here today, you've never trusted Christ as Savior. Today's your day. And I can promise you this room will be excited. I can promise you the people around you will get out of the way. I can promise you that he desires that you not wait another Sunday, another day, another minute, another second before you give your life to Christ. That you go into this, this time of thanksgiving, not saying, God, just thank you for my job, or God, thank you for my health, or God, thank you for my family, all of those things we need to be thankful for. But God, thank you for your son I once was blind, but now I see. Would you stand with me with your heads bowed and your eyes closed? In a moment, I'm going to pray, and our pastors are going to be down front. And if you know you need to give your life to Christ, don't wait. Don't hesitate. Don't hold back. Today's your day. Almost weekly we see people give their life to Christ. It's very normal here. It's abnormal we don't see people give their life to Christ. So please know that the eyes of the Lord are on you and he is calling you to himself. Don't wait another day. Don't. Heaven's too sweet. And the gift of salvation and an intimate walk with Jesus is too real. It's unutterable. It's too good. After I say amen, if you know you need to talk with someone, you need to pray with someone, you know you need to give your life to Jesus, I'm gonna ask you to come. Father, thank you for saving me. And I believe with all of my heart that you're moving in this room today. Father, I believe with all my heart that this many people, there is someone, if not someones, that need to wave the white flag of their life high and surrender 
and come to you. So Jesus, would you empower them to do so? Would you embolden their hearts that they would humble themselves, not come to me, not come to this church, but that they would abandon their life and come to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You come.